create a case example for yourself where you you strip out the money and you think about the bride and whether you're going to be okay with it. And if I did that with this company, no, there wouldn't have been enough emotional value in it for me. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Ed Stevens. Ed, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's a little bit of an American thing, but yes, you did a good job. All right, let me tell the audience a little bit about you. Ed is director of the Global Brokerage at Angel Investment Network, where he's worked since 2010. In that time, he has helped raise money for over 400 startups, including companies such as What Three Words, Simba Mattresses, and much more. He also hosts a podcast called The Startup Microdose, which he started with a colleague. Guests have included the founders of I don't know how to say that one. Huel, H-U-E-L. Yeah. Depop and Killing Kittens. What's happening to names these days, Ed? <laughs> yeah, well, that's... Uh, well, Huel is Spoonerism, uh, Human Fuel. Ah, and I don't okay. know why it makes any more sense to them, but that, that's the crux of it. That's a good one. That's a good one. All right. Well, listen, I really enjoyed it, actually. For the listener, we just had a, a long conversation about what you're doing, and it sounds really exciting to me. But if you could just take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, uh, as I, I masquerade now, it's very much in the sort of startup fundraising uh, ecosystem. I think it's becoming more and more popular. I mean, it's always been leaning towards that in Silicon Valley. But I think if you looked at the UK for the last sort of 30 years, this is pretty new. Everybody used to sort of drift off into the service industries, corporates, you know, get a good job, be a lawyer, be a banker, be a doctor. We're still kind of the established order for until pretty recently. I'd say moving into what I'm doing in 2010 was... I don't know. I'd never heard of the term angel investing before, but I came straight out of Imperial College and suddenly sort of stumbled across this. And, and, and in all honesty, I found my job uh, via a listing on Gumtree. It just happened to be near me. I live in Putney. It was in Boston's Green, about two miles away. And it was a sort of a two-day week job in this thing where you'd match investors to startups. And it, it quickly kind of grabbed me. I mean, we've always had a show here called Dragon's Den, which I think is very similar to Shark Tank. And that's been our exposure to sort of startups. And it's always this sort of, production five people sit there in a chair with wedges of cash there somebody pitches them and you know the money's offered on the spot it's been pretty interesting to be doing that in the real world and the way that it's actually executed on and i've learned a lot along the way certainly about the startup scene i, I plead ignorance to sort of many other forms of financing i think it's probably going to relate to this story that i bring up later but it continues to be fascinating it's an industry that reinvents itself every single year as new technologies come up and it's obvious that it's not just happening in isolation. You're seeing countries and companies all around the world starting to sweep through. You know, look at Uber, Facebook, and Airbnb. I mean, their footprint is just enormous. And, and you're talking about Facebook's user base. I mean, these things are no longer just small tech companies. They are they are sort of almost drivers of political movements, activism, all sorts of things. So they're kind of really embedded in the conversation and the, and the sort of cultural narrative at the moment. So I think it's fascinating. Mm. 
I remember what my first boss said to me when I became an analyst in 1993. He said, we are on the cutting edge of capitalism. But really? now I realize you, Ed, are on the cutting edge of capitalism. The allocation what? of money to the most profitable or likely profitable and successful ventures and the allocation away from ideas that just don't make money. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. The way I start to think about it is capitalism and individualism. There's been a big movement as we look to kind of, you know, there's a big thing around identity politics, to politics at the moment as people sort of start to individualize even more. And I think the last domain of capitalism and individualism is to stand on your own two feet, call yourself an entrepreneur, and then go and try and change, mate. The weird thing we're now getting is, as I said to you just before the interview, we're now seeing 110,000 proposals submitted through our platform you know, every single year. So the way I look at it is the entrepreneur is no longer particularly individualistic. They're now forming a collective unto themselves. So I think there's another discussion that's soon to start happening of how, if we look at them as a collective, can we start to pull resources, information, collective intelligence into a system, our system, angel investment network system, that's going to improve the outcomes for you know, further success, for increasing the probability of startups succeeding or, or certainly not wasting as much invested capital. So mm. we're in a slightly strange movement where we're now taking an eye on that from sort of 10,000 feet down onto the entrepreneur and working out what's next. What's the 2.0 experience going to be of growing businesses where it's less accidental? Because I think there's a romantic idea of being an entrepreneur where you, you go out on a wing and you learn everything in the trenches and you make your mistakes and you grow. But it seems a bit crazy in this day and age where we're watching person after person after person execute there'll always be an individual slant on it but there are going to be some mistakes that are very common especially when it comes to let's say something like fundraising which it's up to service providers like angel investment network and all the other people doing it to start eliminating the errors that keep appearing i mean that's what you'd say about ai and big data the biggest problem is is that to manipulate ai and big data you need large data sets and most entrepreneurs who are the kind of people who'd solve that issue aren't looking to other entrepreneurs trying to work out how to make them more successful while trying to make them self-successful. So, you know, yeah, I, I think we're in a unique position. It's just exciting to be part of it. And, and I'm lucky enough to be able to work with some amazing entrepreneurs and equally amazing investors. Mm. Yeah. Well, how could an entrepreneur be good at fundraising with angels? You know, they just don't, they're focused on their business. So yeah, it, it's definitely something that's needed is some kind of support in making that, you know, a lot less painful, which I imagine it is. Yes. I was also just thinking about what your business really is, which I'm going to tell the audience. What Ed's business really is, is it's a barber shop. No, it's a coffee oh. shop. What do I mean by that? Well, what you said earlier before we went on the air was the idea of how was the old way that people got together and an entrepreneur would raise money is they'd go down to the coffee shop or barber shop or wherever and meet the, you know, the rich guy in the town and pitch an idea to him and he's like yeah i'll give you fifty thousand for that go ahead and try it and uh, so in a sense you're bringing people into the virtual coffee shop the virtual barber shop to pitch that yeah. up. <laughs> well I, and you know what's interesting about the whole the whole process and i won't digress too much is our expectations for the flow of information are changing you know there is an idea and this probably harks to a discussion around risk is ICOs have proven that people are willing to put in an extremely large amount of capital, not on an individual basis, but on a collective basis, into an, uh, 
often an R&D project, very, very quickly. Too quickly. I mean, I'm not the one to, to kind of criticize it because some people say it's the model that's going to disrupt the angel funding model. And some people would say that's the 3.0 of what we're doing. I don't think so because I think humans need a certain amount of time to digest information. Point is, is because of technology, email, data rooms, just like the other way you can serve up information, the amount of information available and the speed at which it can be made available to an investor to be able to do his due diligence has you know, increased massively. But we still get comfort from having a certain amount of time to sit and make our decision. You know, you wouldn't want to invest in something after three days and, and think it blew up in your face. You'd think oh, I rushed it. You're going to want to take two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. But the point we is, never is, do that. Oh, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. It's interesting. So there's changing expectations, changing appetites for risk. I still think the startup environment is something where it's still really difficult to guess who's going to win. You can increase your probabilities, but it, it's hard. Yep, yep. I think we're going to move into the question, but before I ask yep. it, I'm just going to mention to a lot of my listeners, because I've been in Asia for so long or in Asia, if you are thinking about, hmm, I wonder if I could get exposure to the UK, to some of the dynamic startups, you know, I'd highly recommend that you check out Angel Investment Network as one way to start, you know, accessing that. And I'll have all the links in the show notes. So listeners just go there to learn more. So you were going to add? No, I was going to say thank you. Thank you for yeah. um, putting that out. That's very kind of you. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's an opportunity and people are looking for ways, particularly with what's going on with currencies and all that. They're also looking at getting exposure and different things. So, well, now, Ed, it's yeah. time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, so yeah, I think it's, it's easy to assume that my worst investment would be something directly related to startups because um, obviously they come with this like significant risk profile, but actually it was at the same time and the first lesson I'd sort of advocate from this story is it got me kind of playing out of my field of expertise. And, and that's the one thing I think my takeaway is this is kind of stick to what you know. I mean, don't limit yourself. You can always explore new things, but I got my fingers burned. And I think that's sort of stuck with me quite clearly. So this was back in 2012. I was 25 at the time. I'd been working for Angel Investment Network for two years. Um, in that time, I'd been deal making. I'd kind of been getting a feel for what a good deal started to look like, right? So it's very attractive when you're young to sort of look at what all these impressive investors are looking at and, and feed off their excitement. If they're excited about something and they've spent 20 years in investment banking and now they're at Goldman Sachs, like they can spot things that potentially I can't. And you can kind of say, they think it's a good deal. So I should think it's a good deal too. So I'd sort of been getting this, this barometer set up as, as we were closing projects and deals. And, you know, up until that point, I didn't have any money of my own to invest. But I had this feeling that there was something slightly strange about deal broking and then never really understanding the pain points for your investors. It didn't really sit right with me that we could potentially jeopardize their capital. And I wouldn't know what that experience felt. I wouldn't know what it was like for a deal to go south. I wouldn't know what it was like for the, for the pressure of trying to manage the pain of losing money. So yeah, the, the corner turned on 2012 and, and I decided that it was time to start thinking about this. So we had one deal that I worked on 
that went absolutely gangbusters. Loads of investor interest. People were excited about it. And I thought, you know, all the social indicators are there. This is the one. The entrepreneurs delighted with me. The investors seem to be really excited. And it's funny because it's, it's something, if I think back to you now, I'm not especially proud of. The business was called Cash until Friday. And as the name suggests, it kind of caught the zeitgeist in the UK of these lending companies, of kind of lending people money to smooth them over for the month. Wonga was big at the time. And to the company's credit, it didn't try and, and push people into rollover charges in the same way. It didn't try and charge them as extortionate you know, amounts of APR that some of these companies were doing because I know there was a pretty murky world that existed there. But I knew that though Wonga was kind of a poster child at the time, it was a bit of an iffy industry to be involved in. But I think that the theory stacked up. They had more customer orders than they knew what to do with. There was loads of investor interest. And they were going to go and raise some equity and some debt and then go and, and you know, build up a big cash base on which they could build their lending book. So I was really excited and I thought, this, this is great. Um, I'd love to have a piece of this. The story's exciting. The cash was kind of easy to follow in terms of you look at the financials and how it ramp up and then obviously how the cash would become self-sustaining and you know, supply and demand seems relatively obvious to me. So the deal was in a great situation where it was going to get funded. And there were a number of different investors and options on the table and ended up sort of transpiring was that one investor came on board, said he was going to put in 500,000 pounds into the business and he was going to do a listing on AIM. I don't know how much your listeners know about AIM. I'm sure they know probably more than I do, but it's a secondary market where you can kind of get liquidity into the business and you know it's not tradable in the sense that normal stocks and shares are, but you can trade in and out. And, and that would be a good way of getting the business to kind of beef up its valuation, take on more money, and then get a liquidity event for the early investors. It's all seemed quite exciting to me. The guy was suggesting it was going to be backed into some shell company before being listed. And that wasn't anything that I understood at the time. Um, but you kind of took people's word for it and probably was too caught up in the excitement. So then I decided to go in with my £2,500 and I got my dad on board to come in with £10,000. Then at £12,500, I said to the guy, you know, we'd like to come in. He was fine with it. Away we went. What happened then was the main investor and the entrepreneur fell out in a big way. Um, very quickly, one started accusing the other of being dicey, of malpractice, of this, that, the other. And, and it was really bad in that I was a client of this company. So I was caught in the middle from the perspective that one was the investor, one was the entrepreneur. I had relationships with both of them. I was caught in there as an investor. And the most bitter pill at the time to swallow actually was having my dad's money. And then I felt, you know, I was like, I feel like a pretty bad custodian of his money now. And I still couldn't tell you to this day who the dodgy party was. It, it became so opaque. And quickly they were saying that one was going to sue the other. And it seemed like some dodgy fees are being added into the listing on the shell company. So I think it said, started like it was going to be this easy process. And then the investor was starting to lumber the entrepreneur with consultancy fees on, you know, to claw back his investment and then paying his investment installments. So there was some weird sort of equity clawback he was trying to do. And even worse, so the, that was already looking pretty bad, is that basically then that was the same year the A market looked to almost collapse, I think, and I can't remember exactly why, but it nearly ceased to be a thing. So 
I so an anti-liquidity event. <laughs> oh, oh, like, uh, and, and, and I look back in the history books and it's like, this is, this is not something that has happened for years. So it became like the perfect storm where, it, yeah, as you say, for something that was meant to be liquid, easy, cash in, da -da -da, rolling the business through, it just turned to absolute hell. And the worst thing is then is the business like that relies on operating and therefore lending cash. The investor who's pissed off wanted to start lobbying other investors to do a cease and desist to stop the business from trading. Now, of course, if the business stops trading, then it dies and it's now a kind of scrap for the remains and who gets paid out and, and not. At this point, obviously, the entrepreneur, he was an ex-army guy, sort of bunkered down and decided that he was going to play hardball as well. He then said, we were not going to get our equity in, in the business. At this point in time, we, didn't, we hadn't been given our share certificate. And we were kind of in no man's land. And he said, yeah, the equity deal's off. This is all too confusing. <laughs> like at this point, I mean, he's just got our cash. We have really no means of getting it back and no security against it. And to my dad's credit, we sat down and talked about it. I was head in hands. I, I didn't. I mean, there was one week I didn't sleep for a week I just I couldn't I was like just on that kind of high octane edge where you're just you're too wide you don't think about anything it's like like a waking nightmare because you know at 25 I just thought 10,000 pounds and it is I just thought it's a lot of money for my dad he could have probably taken into retirement like I'm such an effing failure and I've really screwed up and I've tried to be the sort of prodigal son and I've like completely stepped in a booby trap here and worse I've actually led him into and he came to the fore at that point and kind of sat down with me and you know he did tell me like this is just life shit happens don't worry about it let's just think of a strategy of how to, to deal with this and one thing I say I always give my dad credit for is he's, he's a very moderate and reasonable man he didn't lose his call he didn't get out like you or I would pressure <laughs> yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't just ignite and start yelling and accusing. And the other investor was doing all this stuff. And, and he said, you know what, I'm going to try and have a meeting with the entrepreneur, I sit down and appeal to his goodwill. He's a human at the end of the day. And we did do that and got him to agree to basically service our capital back to us at a 7% loan, um, which we eventually got him to agree with in a sort of nominal sense after chasing him for months. And then to backdate the payments. Which happened, and we had to chase him each and every month to, to make sure the payments went through, and there were a couple of months where he'd disappear again. I think we got to sort of seven months of the 15 months' worth of payment plans back, and he disappeared again, and it took another three months to get him get hold of him again. Um, somehow, some way, we eventually got out of that with shirts still on our back and 7% paid back in capital. It didn't flunk on the AIM listing. It didn't get the lawsuits, and it is still trading I believe as now a sort of mezzanine finance type bridging loan company and it's doing okay, but it went so quickly off course and it went on for so long to get that money back that even getting the repayments ended up being kind of a, a nightmare. I mean, there was a sense of relief when the last one came through because you just put it to bed, but the opportunity cost of capital and the, the stress caused everybody for the 7% definitely wasn't worth it. And you know, all the meantime, you're trying to keep your, your focus on your day job. And I think a few things there. I think if my dad hadn't been so reasonable about it, that would have been even more stressful. But it built up some resilience. It definitely, definitely. And that's the sort of crux of the story. But it was really unpleasant. It was right. really unpleasant. 
it's interesting because out of all the different stories that I hear, there's a couple common features. And one of them, first common feature is people buy something because they think it's going to go up and it goes up. They've been, you know, they're proven right and they get excited and confident, but very quickly things turn. And the second one yeah. is that things go wrong the minute you step into it and you think, holy crap, what did I just do? Yep. And uh, yeah, so maybe that's more well, ladder. Normally, I'm pretty good about if I'm going to make an investment, I make my peace with the fact that that money is gone. I mean, I'm not yeah, somebody who's yeah. going to put their life savings in something. I'm okay with the idea that it's lost. This particular one, I was bonded to my dad as well. Mm. And I think bringing his capital in there and trying to manage somebody else's money was also a lesson that I've learned. It's like, I don't mind losing my own money being an idiot. And I work in such a high risk investment class that I'm very familiar with this. What was strange on that deal is in the UK, we have something called EIS eligibility, which is a downside loss protection mechanism. And because we didn't even get that push through EIS, because it never ended up converting to equity, we lost all of the downside protection as well. So even if I just punted it into a startup, we could have got 30% against our income tax just for making the investment, plus the downside protection on top of that. So we ended up with zero protection and then getting 7%, which was odd because if I just stuck with what I know you you cut yourself an investment and you know you're not going to lose all of it because the government's going to help subsidize it mm. but yeah I agree it, it sounded too good to be true I didn't care about the business so what made it even more bitter was if I really believed or loved the business model you know if it'd been curing leukemia then if I'd lost all my money I'd think well I tried to do the right thing so I screwed up some diligence somewhere or it just didn't work out but the intention was in the right place. This, I never had that feeling. I never thought <laughs> what I'm doing is good. I thought I'm chasing money. And yeah. that makes it a lot harder when it does go wrong. And I know some people probably kill that strategy and you've got the Warren Buffett and whatever, and they just know how to do that. But for me, that was also a takeaway. Is just don't invest into what you don't care about because if it does go wrong, then you find it harder to reconcile. Mm. Those are some great lessons that you've already gone through. Maybe I'll go over a couple of things that I was thinking about. The idea of getting out of your knowledge zone is what you were talking about, which I think is, you know, important for all of us to try to, you know, improve ourselves. I think the key thing is that you do it with a small amount of capital, which in your case, it was a small amount of capital. Now, relative, yeah. relative to what your net worth at the time, it may have been a bit big, but, and it probably would probably have been a relatively small amount of capital ultimately for your dad over the long run. Yeah. But the key for the listeners takeaway is that it's okay to go play in some, you know, new areas and try some different things. But the key thing is do that with a very small amount of capital, particularly in the beginning. The second thing is the idea of external events. And this is something that I think we just, people don't think about when we invest, but the point is, is that there's always some kind of crazy external things that can happen. Oil price shoots up, oil price drops, interest rates jump, the government mm. changes the policy. And in this case, as you said, you know, who would have anticipated that the AIM market would like all of a sudden collapse under its own weight for a year or so or whatever. So I think that's something that we have to say, we, we can't really predict those things, but you have to expect that they can happen. And so be aware of the risks that we just don't know coming. Well, and probably so, right? It's like, they may never have happened before and it could still be a risk. And that's, that's the weirdest thing about it. You just think this hasn't happened before. It's and, unpredictable. And one thing that's also interesting that I've noticed when you're in a bad investment is everything kind of looks bad. 
any new news that comes up is volatile and, and continues to look bad. So I think when you're in it, it also seems worse because every wobble or this or whatever seems bad. Yep. Because it's essentially it's now in a precarious situation because it's going bad that you kind of constantly feel uncertain. So another thing that we had was just create like a check-in plan with uh, the person you're dealing with or, or set yourself a sort of period of time where you're going to check back into the investment because if you look at it every day or try and touch base with it every mm. day, it will drive you mad. Yeah, exactly. And I think the last one is about the family element and, you know, bringing family into any investment is hard. And I think that we kind of blindly go into it sometimes thinking we're really doing a favor for somebody in our family. But in the end, it can be really, really dangerous. And I would say I started a company with my best friend, Dale Lee, who we started a company called Coffee Works in Thailand in 1995. We started really selling in 1996. And then the 97 financial crisis hit at the epicenter where we were was Bangkok, Thailand. (laughs) Simply economy collapsed by 11%. The non-forming loans went to 55% of total loans in the system and all of our customers dried up. And it was only through sheer determination and capital that we managed to survive that and live to this day. But I remember, and Dale and I have just been best friends for many years. We grew up together in Ohio. But the one thing that I remember talking to Dale is like, you know, if you need to quit this business, quit it and let's close it. Do not mm. feel bad for the investors and myself. And because we also had our friends and family invest into it in a small way, but for them, it was a big way. I said, it is all known that this is high risk. We never made any claim that it wasn't. And they can, it, as long as there's no fraud, deceit or trickery yeah. going on, it is okay to let go and let it shut down. And unfortunately, people are gonna lose, but that is what investing is about. And that is what investing in high risk startup type of companies is about. So the reason why I say that is because Dale got into a real depressed state and felt really bad. And I think that that was one of our many conversations that helped him to realize, look, no, this is not the end of the world if I have to close this thing. And so that's a lesson that we took. And it made, just made me think about the whole thing of family involved and all that. But, no, that's, that's a great lesson. And actually, you are right to make peace with it. I think fraud is a whole different thing. And that just sucks. It's just people lying. And a lot of people could get caught out by that. And again, that's why you tap investments with what you're prepared to lose. But yeah. Everything carries a risk. And I think we have this this desire as humans to kind of take agency on behalf of other people. And as you say, when people become adults, they make decisions for themselves. And it's, it's, it feels quite uncomfortable to say they're adults that make the decision. There's also a dislocation, I think, let's say with something that's like a yielding return type approach, is the pre-sale, which obviously has to excite because let's say if it's looking for 10 to 15% return, it's got to differentiate itself from something else offering 10 to 15% return. So you can get these organizations where the sales process will dislocate from the operational side of the business. So if you speak to somebody in operations, they may be a bit more realistic about the volatility and then this and the risk and then that. And then you've got kind of like a department of sales who are kind of cooking the phones and kind of just kind of keeping people buoyed up and emotionally excited about doing it because that's why they're doing it. And I think sometimes that can create problems of expectation and disappointment and yeah, as you say, I think as long as you're realistic with people up front, they know the risk and then they're prepared to move, fine. And and yeah, as you even go on to say, 
family members a whole different, whole different yeah. thing on top of that. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? What I would say is, yeah, I would say strip out, create a case example for yourself where you, you strip out the money and you think about the bride and whether you're going to be okay with it. And if I did that with this company, no, there wouldn't have been enough emotional value in it for me. So I'd say stick to, stick to what you know and also it's got to be something you enjoy being invested into. Otherwise, I think it doesn't really make enough sense. I mean, I think that's a, a great lesson. And it's not a common one because what you're really kind of saying is don't invest just for the money. No. And some people are great at that and they, they probably know property development and they can probably kill the compound interest because compound interest is an amazing thing, right? Mm. But you are never really going to have an emotional attachment to compound interest. There's nothing more disappointing to us than when we get offered a company offering a startup offering a convertible loan because you're not part of it. Uh, and so, yeah, I understand some people have got those aspects of their portfolios. I, in those particular instances, would like, rather have somebody manage that process for me who understands yeah. so, specifically the vehicles. So invest in something you like, coffee. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, well, last... I do that last, every, single, every single day. Exactly. I enjoy it every morning. So last question is, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, my personal goal is, as one, grow our, our podcast, Startup Microdose, just interview some more entrepreneurs because, as you know, I'm sure you're finding it's really great to learn from people and their experiences. That's a nice legacy thing to do. The second would be to take what we're doing at Angel Investment Network, which you know we're proud, we're expanding globally, and start to focus our attentions on, on impact-related investments. We want to also solve um, connecting in more female investors into the discussions, Globally as well. I don't think we mean we want these little pockets. We want people in Singapore to be able to connect with people in the UK and really represent a network. Because at the moment, we're, we're matching startups to investor to invest. But I think there's more value to be given to the investor. And I think there's more value to be given to the entrepreneur. So we're going to do a lot with the data around that. And, and the means which we kind of get more and more people into the discussion worldwide. So yeah, that's, that's kind of our play, which could be, I think, will be exciting. So coming to a city near you, ladies and gentlemen. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Ed, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I do. Yeah, actually, I do. I've got exactly a, a parting word is that there is a lot of, as I say, we're facing Brexit, a lot of uncertainty in the world. I think in the face of it, it's pretty good for everybody to take some individual agency over the decisions we make. Because I think in aggregate, if we all make the right decisions starting from us and, and don't feel like we're, we're victims of external circumstances, I think the world will generally become a better place bit by bit. And there's too many people who kind of feel like we're bobbing around in the ocean with politics preying on us and, and that is true to some degree but we we are still empowered to make our own choices and vote with our capital where possible so amen all right well that's a wrap on another great story to help us create grow and most importantly protect our well fellow risk takers i'll see you on the upside